Welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. This morning's Bible reading comes from the book of John, chapter 20, uh, verses 1 to 30. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for, the fear, for fear of the Jew, Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands? Reach out 
your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Thanks, Daniel. I'm here. I'm freezing. <laughs> Hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Um, when you can look back on a situation, uh, suddenly it makes sense. Or at least some of it makes sense. Um, as I've been thinking about Thomas, I've, uh, I've been going in my mind through the various scenarios around doubt and faith. Um, and then I've tried to put myself into his shoes. I'm trying to think about what Thomas was going through in this chapter. And I'd like to share some of that with you this morning. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you'd speak to us today. Lord, I pray that you'd uh, speak through me, Lord. I pray you'd speak by your Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would connect with the people here in this room today, Lord God, in such a way, Lord God, that they are able to walk out of here, Lord God, filled with faith. My Lord and my God, Lord, I pray that that would become a revelation for all of us, a sustaining revelation, I pray. In Jesus' name. Right, Thomas. He, uh, he doesn't get a great rap in the Bible. Um, if we were to think about some of the other disciples who uh, appear, um, they are very much larger-than-life characters. They're very believable characters. So we've got Peter. He's impetuous. He's bold, rash at times, warm-hearted. He acts. We've got John, who's reverent, quiet, affectionate even, trustful. He's a disciple of love. Andrew? Well, Andrew is always a conduit. He's always bringing others to Christ. Mary of Bethany is somebody who always is at Jesus' feet. And then we have Martha, who is uh, known for her service, her serving, her work. Thomas, not so great. His reputation is, has become a byword for, for doubt. In fact, it's an expression we often use. Somebody is a doubting Thomas, somebody who is sceptical, someone who doesn't believe, somebody who demands evidence. But let's put ourselves in Thomas's shoes. Jesus has been crucified. Thomas's world has been turned upside down and he knows nothing about sanctification, justification, Resurrection. He knows nothing about those great theologies associated with the rest of the Bible and the whole idea of atonement. All of those things, none of those things mean anything to Thomas on that, at that particular moment. 
For Thomas, all that he knows is that the man that he's been following the last three years has been brutally murdered and is dead. Now, um, for Thomas, he, he could see this coming. This is no great surprise to Thomas. Thomas is fundamentally a practical person. And uh, when he comes up in Scripture, Thomas is somebody who speaks his mind and he's quite practical in what he sees coming. So one of the, uh, the, one of the first instances where we get to know Thomas is when, Thomas, sorry, when Jesus says, I'm going back to Judea to raise Lazarus. And Thomas goes, are you nuts? Don't you know if you go back there, they're going to kill you? And the disciples are in agreement. Now, this isn't some sort of metaphorical kill you. This isn't a sort of a, uh, this is going to be an unpopular decision for you. This is not going to play well with the crowds. This is, they're going to kill you. Now, the reason he can say that with such surety is because that's what always happens. Jesus wasn't the first Messiah, the first person with a great message of restoration and hope. But the problem was is that all of the other ones had wound up dead. And so for Thomas, following Jesus was an incredibly risky thing and he went into it with his eyes open. He knew that following a Messiah was a death sentence. He knew that. Following a Messiah was a death sentence. And death wasn't some sort of metaphorical thing. He saw it happen time after time after time. During his lifetime, he may have witnessed Hundreds of people being crucified. Now, I don't think I could bear to see one person crucified, but imagine living in a world where it was something that you observed, perhaps weekly or monthly. He was a practical man. On the night of the Last Supper, he is with Jesus in the upper room. And Jesus says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And I'll come back for you. And Thomas is the one that pipes up and says, we don't know where that place is. We don't know where to go. How will we know? And I'm glad he said, I'm glad he asked that question. Because it, it provokes a response from Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Fantastic little summary of what Jesus was all about. I uh, was asking a friend of mine for some advice about preaching yesterday. Was it yesterday? No, Friday. I said, I'm preaching on Sunday. Have you got any tips for me? And her response was, don't worry about it. They won't remember it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Which was a little bit of relief, strangely. And so I thought, um, her two pieces of advice was, keep it brief, keep it short, keep it simple, and don't worry, they won't remember it anyway. So uh, I'm going to keep, try, and, try and stick to the keep it brief, keep it simple part of that advice. Uh, and so I've got about three points here. And the first point I want to make is that faith isn't a philosophy. It's not a good idea. It's a relationship. It's a journey. When Jesus came to his disciples, he didn't say, think on me. He doesn't say, read my book. He says, follow me. 
Thomas had been doing that. He'd been following a person. So for him, faith was a relationship with a, with a living flesh and blood person. That's a tremendous, tremendous privilege that he had that we don't have. He followed the literal Jesus around for about three years. But it's a relationship. Now that might sound self-evident, but it's not. Faith is a relationship and it takes time to grow. Now, the reality of it is, and I think this is a reality for all of us, is that for all of us, in our faith walk with Jesus, there is doubt. We are all doubting Thomases. We all have those moments of despair. When I read chapter 20, the question that I ask is, upon reading that the disciples are gathered together, why isn't Thomas there? Why is it that all of the other disciples are there in that room praying? Why is it that Thomas isn't there? And I, I think it's just that he was hurting. He was hurting too much. It was too painful to be there. It wasn't just that he was lazy or slack or late. I think it just hurt too much. It was too painful to be around those people that were associated with Jesus. It brought all of the memories back. Just three or four nights before, they'd been sitting around with Jesus enjoying a meal. It hurt too much to go back there into that space with those same people. There's something that I want to think about and say in reference to, to faith. And that is for faith to grow, there has to be doubt. Now, I know that, that there is scripture that talks about faith coming from hearing the word of God. But when I read the New Testament, when I read the, the author of those words, nobody who follows Jesus, nobody that follows Jesus gets there through hearing alone. They all have an experience. So the journey of faith is always a journey of experience. It's interactive. It's relational. It always involves God stepping into our space. And it almost always involves doubt. Um, someone once said that uh, faith, the growth of faith always involves some form of disorientation. It always involves our expectations being turned upside down, what we anticipated happening changing. Um, think about Paul. His journey of faith doesn't start with him um, hearing the word of God and responding purely to that word of God. He, in fact, gets 
a whack over the head. He's struck, if you like, by God. He's blinded. Now that's quite an experience of God. Um, All of the other disciples had an experience where their entire journey is a journey of revelation and doubt. It's in fact both of those all of the time. If you look at the three years that the disciples followed Jesus, Jesus is constantly leading them into places of doubt. He's constantly leading them into places where their expectations are being challenged, where what they thought they knew is no longer sure. There's this constant journey of doubt. Eugene Peterson says, Our faith develops most out of the most difficult aspects of our existence, not the easiest. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, Just as surely as God desires to lead us to knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely we must be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate with ourselves. Now I'm not, and please don't mishear me, I'm I'm not wanting to put doubt on a pedestal. I'm not wanting to say that he who doubts the most is the wisest or is the deepest or is the most thoughtful. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying for all of us is that we all have to go through the shadow of the valley of death. And those that have been there, I think, have had the capacity to grow faith the most. And I don't say that flippantly. I imagine that there's some people here today who are in agony. And I'm sure that for some of you, doubt must be, must, must, must really hurt. It, it must, you, you, you might be in the place where Thomas is right now. You might well be feeling this, the despair. For you, it may be an incredible act of faith simply to be here this morning. Sometimes the greatest act of faith is just showing up. And for some of you, that may be all that you're hanging on to this morning. But I want you to know that in this particular story, Jesus says, look, see, touch, experience me, taste me. He doesn't stand back off and make it difficult for his disciples. He appears to them. Uh, Matthew's, uh, Matthew's account of this is somewhat different. In Matthew's account, he says, tell the disciples to meet me on a, on a given mountain in Galilee, I think it is. And then he appears to his disciples there, and the scripture says, some believed and some doubted. And they both belonged. There was room for both. There was room for those for whom the revelation of Jesus in the flesh was life and there was room for those who said, what is going on here? This doesn't make sense. And then he sends both groups out into all of the world to make disciples. He sends the doubters out as well as those who believed easily, those that responded quickly. You don't have to have the full story. 
You don't have to have the full revelation of Jesus to be sent out to share what you've, give, you've been given. In fact, in the very act of being sent out and going, in the very act of sharing your doubt and your story and your life, faith grows there. Um, I, I distinctly remember that the first South African I ever met was a man by the name of Daryl Payne. And uh, he was a Bible college teacher. And uh, I was probably about 20. And I won't try and do his accent. I wouldn't do it justice. But I remember that he used to say, and he used to almost be transported to another place, and he'd look up like this, and he'd say, you've got to get out on the limb, because that's where the fruit is. And he'd say it over and over. You've got to get out on the limb, because that's where the fruit is. The problem with doubt is that doubt holds us back from experiencing the life of Christ. See, the problem of doubt for Thomas was that he wasn't at that meeting. He didn't turn up. He wasn't easily convinced. The problem of doubt for us is that it stops us participating in the life of Christ. And the life of Christ is always out on the limb. See, in the kingdom of God, you've always got to leave something in order to receive. You've always got to give something up in order to participate in what God has for you next. And that's an interesting principle about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom where you get to take what you've got now into the next revelation or the next experience of God. You've always got to leave it behind. You've got to leave your nets behind. You've got to leave your mother and father behind. You've got to leave your farms behind. Okay? You've got to sell the field. The kingdom of God always says, step out, leave something behind in order to participate, in order to grow. Get out on the limb because that's where the fruit is. So in order to grow in our faith, we've actually got to get out. We've got to get out onto the limb. We've got to get out of the boat. We've got to turn up. You have to be prepared to let go if you are to receive. The last thing I want to say is this. The solution to the problem of doubt isn't faith. The solution to the problem of doubt isn't faith. The solution to the problem of doubt is faithfulness. It's faithfulness. And you can show faithfulness wherever you are in the journey of life. The beauty of making faithfulness our goal rather than faith is that in being faithful we give ourselves and others the opportunity to learn to experience and to know. All of the disciples had doubt. All of the disciples had questions. None of the disciples understood what was going on at Jesus' death. All, all of them simply saw a horrible murder. All of them simply saw the end of the story for another Messiah.
all of them felt the loss and the pain. So I don't know where you are. Certainly, um, the older I get, the more aware I am of the fact that everybody at some point is hurting, that everybody at some point experiences enormous doubt and frustration and pain and disappointment. The solution to that pain isn't faith. The solution is a person. And that person is experienced through faithfulness. Be faithful. Trust in the Lord. Lean into Jesus. Lean into Jesus. Let him come to you. Let him reveal himself to you. For some of you, that may be in a very personal way. For most of us, the revelation of Jesus that we get comes in the body of Christ itself. That's one of the reasons why it's so important to not to rock up on a Sunday morning. One of the reasons why it's so important to be faithful about following God on a Sunday morning. It's not that there's anything magical about Sunday morning. It's that this is where the body of Christ is meeting. This is where we're anticipating the Holy Spirit's going to show up. This is where we're going to see his hands and feet. Don't let your pain stop you being faithful. Allow your pain to draw you into a faithful relationship with God. And in doing that, you're going to grow in your faith. Faith will emerge. And it won't be a superficial faith. It won't be this declarative faith. It'll be a a deep, rich faith. A faith that can be shared and a faith that can sustain others when their faith is in dark places. So Thomas, we're all Thomas. We can all identify with Thomas. Thomas was one of us. He asked good questions. He was practical. He wanted to know what it meant to follow Jesus. He wanted to know where Jesus was going to be. And when he had that revelation, revelation of Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God. That was a transformative moment in his life. But it came out of an experience. It came out of an experience. It came out of, out of a revelation of Jesus. That's all I want to say today. But I want to pray for you and for us. I want to acknowledge that for some people here today, um, pain is probably holding you back. And I want to encourage you to faithfulness. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for Thomas. And Lord, we thank you that you, you called a person like that. And thank you that we can all identify with Thomas, Father, because he doubted. And doubt has been a part of the journey of every one of us here today. And we thank you, Lord God, that you revealed yourself to your disciples. And we thank you that they responded in various ways. But we thank you, Father God, that they did take your word out 
into the, into the, into the world and that we are, Lord, the, the fruit of their labours, the fruit of your Holy Spirit, Lord. And I just pray now, Lord God, for these people here today. And I ask, Father God, that you would meet them and that there would be revelation that comes out of experience in knowing you, experience of you interacting in their lives, Father. And Father, I pray, Lord, for all of those who aren't here this morning because it hurts too much to be here, because it's just too disappointing. Lord, I pray, Lord God, and I ask everybody here to join me, Lord, in praying for those who are, who are hurt by life, who are hurt by church, who are hurt by the disappointment of their faith walk with Jesus. And Lord, we ask that from that hurt and from that pain and from that disappointment, Lord God, revelation would come, experience would come, hope would come, faithfulness would emerge. And Lord, we ask, Father God, that Lord, your kingdom would come, your will would be done, your life would be experienced here at Kerry, Lord God, as it is in heaven. Lord, we ask that this place, Lord God, would be a place of life and hope. And to a cynical world, Lord God, I pray that, that Jesus would be experienced through Kerry, through your kingdom, Lord, in this place. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Brendan. In John chapter 6, we read that Jesus was speaking to just some people, the crowd. And it says in verse 28, Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, The work, of God, the work that God requires is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, Well, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from the heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I have told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. God took the Israelites through the, through the desert day after day after day, providing them manna, a bread substance to sustain the Israelites in a place where there was no food. And he didn't give them bucket loads so they could store up for six months. He gave them their daily bread. Every day they had to step out of their tent, trusting again that God would provide. Over that period of time, God stripped them of all of the other resources that they had and they just had to day after day trust that God would provide. We had the opportunity to participate together as the body of Christ in communion this morning.
Jesus there was speaking to say, I, I am the bread of life. I am the one that came down from heaven. I am the life of the world. When Thomas saw the scars and the wounds in Jesus' body, he said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And in so saying, he wasn't just saying, oh, that's Jesus. I recognize you now. He was making a declaration. My Lord and my God. You are the one to whom my allegiance is. You are the one to whom my life belongs. Brennan has talked about this daily journey of faith, the daily journey of continuing to be obedient, to continuing to be faithful. As we step into communion, I invite you in whatever space you're in to say, my Lord and my God. As I come and take a piece of bread and a cup of juice. I just come faithful to your statement that you are my life. That, that you are the source of my hope. That you are the source of my redemption. That it is you who washes me clean. My Lord and my God. And sometimes that is all we are capable of. The invitation in what Brennan said was in those places of difficulty, lean into Jesus. Lean into Jesus. That's what they are there for, to draw us closer to himself. And that's what we do when we take communion together. We say, my Lord and my God, you are the bread of life. So in whatever place you're in, be it a place where you're full of faith, be it a place where you're struggling, I invite you in a moment when you're ready to stand and to say, my Lord and my God, I believe, help my unbelief and participate in the meal that he gave to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came. We thank you that you tell us over and over again that you are our life that you are the bread of life, Lord, that we need to participate in you intimately in order to live. Lord, I thank you for places of difficulty and struggle and doubt. Lord, I thank you that you're not afraid of those, that you don't judge us for those, but Lord, you draw us to yourself in that. Lord, in communion this morning, as we, as we stand, Lord, as we take a piece of bread, Lord, as we take a cup of juice. Lord, we do so as a faithful step, accepting and embracing our need for you, that you are our life, our Lord and our God. Amen.